0: You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more.
1: These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised.
0: Between 2010 and 2017, at least eight men would go missing in and around Toronto's gay village that would end up being a part of this case. Those eight disappearances and their connection, for whatever reason, would fly under the radar of police who seemed to view most of these as just missing men who probably had reasons to go missing. Even though the community at large was certain that there was a serial killer in their midst, taking victims and making them disappear, police would wholeheartedly disagree. Even though the majority of the men that would eventually be tied to Bruce MacArthur had many things in common, including age, ethnicity, background, and marginalized status, police either failed to accept that this was the work of one suspect or multiple suspects working together until it was far too late. This week we look at how everything finally came together to investigate, capture, and put that serial killer behind bars. Welcome to part three on our trilogy covering the life, victims, and end of the story of Bruce MacArthur, Canada's oldest known serial killer.
1: forgotten. We hope that you are well and we hope that you have been enjoying this deep dive into the inner workings of the life of Bruce MacArthur. As Lance said, this week we will really get to see the path that this man took as he descended at such an old age into the madness, insanity, and sickness that would lead to his long list of kidnapping, murders, and crimes. But actually, before all that, Lance, how are you doing? I'm
0: doing well. Honestly, I think that since we started this podcast, this case has certainly been the one that I've done the most research into. I've read everything that I can get my hands on, and this case has a lot of information out there. A lot of that has sadly been pieced together after the fact because so much was either hidden or ignored at the time. This case went from families and friends of missing men searching independently and a community at large that seemed to know what was going on, unfortunately, long before the police did, um, to a concerted effort, finally, with the police getting on track and investigating and making an arrest, in spite of everything that they had said and done about a serial killer in the village up until that point. It's been a lot. And I've certainly found myself equally disgusted by police again and inspired by a community that never gave up.
1: Yeah, it certainly um, has been a journey, hasn't it?
0: Yeah, it has. Uh, I can't imagine the journey, though, that everyone involved obviously went through in real time by any means. But even just sifting through the information and going through the ebbs and flows of this case was definitely a journey all of its own. Um, I can't implore anyone that's listening enough. If you're listening to us, you're obviously into true crime. Uh, Do a deep dive into this case because we can't nearly get all the information out there unless we do like a 10 part series on this case. So like I said last week, a great place to start is the book Missing from the Village by Justin Ling.
1: Uh, yeah, and just so you guys know, Lance is going to need a new copy of that book after all the bent pages and highlighting that he's done in that book.
0: I don't know what you're talking about. No, it's for sure. It looks like the Diary of a Madman, for sure. Before we start, we should mention, too, that this is indeed part three of our coverage of the Bruce MacArthur story. So if you're new to GBNF and to this story, we recommend for sure listen to parts one and two before you listen to this episode. And with that out of the way, let's get down to business and tell the tale of how Bruce MacArthur's well-woven web fell apart. Shall we?
1: Let's do it. As we have covered previously, the timeline around Bruce and his victims is long with the first man going missing in 2010 and the last two men going missing in 2017. As best as we can in this episode, we will try to touch on all the major points and fit everything together.
0: Prepare yourself, because there is a lot of maddening information in this case and a lot of questions that will likely never truly get answered, but the main one in my mind is why Bruce MacArthur was not seen as a more ever-present force in this case way sooner than he was. The connections to victims was uncanny, and if there was one name that did seem to come up a lot, it was definitely that of Bruce MacArthur.
1: So, we will pick up the story of how police investigated the missing men in 2012. That is when the Toronto Police Services launched a task force called Project Houston. Project Houston was the task force that was put together to attempt to uncover what happened in various crimes that were going on that they thought may have been linked together. One of those cases was the missing person case of Skandaraj Navratnam from 2010. Police believe that Skanda had in fact been murdered, but they had no leads and no evidence to defend that thought.
0: What is interesting is the intersecting of cases that would go on within this task force. There were really three main ones that have come to light. The the first case was that, of course, of the eventual Bruce MacArthur serial murders. The second case that they thought was tied together, perhaps, was centered around a man claiming to have killed and cannibalized a man in the Toronto area. And the third was actually the case surrounding Luca Magnata, who we previously covered here on GBNF. It was believed that all of the cases could possibly actually be linked together.
1: As time went on with Project Houston, they would also end up grouping two other men potentially with Skanda as possibly being linked. You guessed it, those two men would be Abdul Bazir Faizi, known as Bazir, and Majid Kahan, known as Hamid. As we discussed previously, all three men were immigrants who came to Canada from the southern Asian part of the world, and all three were middle-aged men who, as we know, disappeared from the Church and Wellesley area of Toronto, also known as the Gay Village.
0: I did mention that there was not a lot of interaction between Bruce and the police in the last episode, but one of the most jarring things is that there was interaction, and it is believed that there were at least two interviews done with Bruce. The first one actually came from Project Houston, One of the things that came to the attention of police was that Bruce actually did have ties to all three men that were grouped together in this investigation.
1: Project Houston realized that there was a connection to Bruce here because as they continued to sift through Skanda's computer, they found a deleted file that had an email and a phone number. The email was silverfox51 at hotmail.com. And that jumped out at the detectives because they realized that they had also seen that same email address on a notepad in Baziers home. So, they ran the phone number through their system and realized that the email and the phone traced back to Bruce.
0: The last warrant that was associated with Project Houston before it was shut down because of a lack of evidence was actually filed on September 23rd, 2013. That warrant stated that an interview was being scheduled with Bruce regarding the disappearances of Skanda and Bazir. Bruce evidently showed zero reservations about coming in to be interviewed. He came in, he answered all of the questions that were thrown his way, and he was a model interviewee from all accounts. He told investigators that he knew Skanda but that they were only friends. He said that they hung out at the Black Eagle and they were not romantically connected in any way.
1: When shown pictures of the three missing men, Bruce would admit that he recognized Hamid and said that they had known one another for over 10 years. He also told investigators that they had had a sexual relationship. He also said that Hamid had worked with Bruce for about a month doing landscaping work. Bruce would also deny that he knew Bazir at all. It would appear that investigators were secure enough that the man who was a fixture in the community was telling the truth, and that was that. Not long afterwards, in April of 2014, Project Houston would indeed be shut down after failing to find evidence to continue looking into the disappearances of the three men. They felt that they had exhausted all available leads.
0: One thing of note, this interview took place in 2013, which, if you're following along at home, was before Bruce's assault charges were removed from his record, and also, Bruce claiming to not know Basir at all seems at best confusing to me, since his email address was found in his house. After the closure, though, of Project Houston, things appear to have gone quiet for a long time. We covered all of the victims in part two of the case, so we will run through what happened between the closing of Project Houston and what really would come next.
1: With Skanda, Bazir, and Hamid all missing by that point, there appears to have been a major lull between victims that would eventually be found and attributed to Bruce. One could certainly hypothesize that the lull may have had something to do with Bruce being interviewed and being worried that he may have been watched after that interview or just a cooling period after seemingly escaping capture. But there were still five more victims that would be attributed to him that started to disappear again in 2015.
0: In August of 2015, Krishna Kangaratnam and Surush Mahmoodi would go missing. In April of 2016, Dean Lissawick would go missing. And then in March and June of 2017, Salim Essin, and Andrew Kinsman respectively would go missing as well. It really would be the disappearance of Andrew that would restart things in earnest as far as Bruce's case. Andrew was indeed seen as a stable and responsible long-time member of the gay community. We covered in the last episode that he in fact had much less in common with the other missing men, but as we have talked about many times in the past on this show, This is the type of person that goes missing that gets the attention of the police.
1: The victims before certainly were considered more fringe than Andrew was, being that they were mostly closeted men, Asian immigrants, and people considered to be transient. Andrew was certainly not the type of person that police felt may have just gone home or moved elsewhere. Andrew was steady.
0: Not long after Andrew disappeared, a new task force was put together. This one was called Project Prism, and was largely put together to investigate the missing cases of Andrew Kingsman and Selim Essin, and also to look into any possible connection that could be found between them and the three disappearances that were looked into by Project Houston. While the work was being done, there would be more cases popping up in the community, though. On November 29th, the body of Tess Ritchie, a missing woman from the village, would be found four days after she was reported missing. And the day after that, the body of Allura Wells, a homeless transgendered woman, was identified after being found in August earlier that year. As you can imagine, this made fear and rumors spread like wildfire, and the community really started to fear that there was indeed a serial killer in their midst. However, Police Chief Mark Saunders would take the rather unusual step on December 8th of 2017 of holding a press conference about the three investigations into Ritchie, Wells, and of course Kinsman and Essen. During that press conference, and I must say, please do remember that date, December 8th, 2017. It's pretty close to the other dates we're about to talk about.
1: During that press conference, Mark Saunders would say, quote, We follow the evidence, and the evidence is telling us that that's not the case right now. The evidence today tells us that there is not a serial killer,
0: Backing up to shortly after Andrew disappeared, police did have leads. They looked over everything and anything inside of Andrew's home, and one of the things that they found was a calendar that he had, that he kept track of appointments and such on. The entry for June 26th, the day that he was presumed to have gone missing, had an entry that said, Bruce.
1: Police would look at surveillance videos for the area around Andrew's home on that date, and they would deem that a man that looked like Andrew had left the building and approached a red vehicle. A license plate could not be seen, nor could video pick up a clear view of the driver, But there was something unique about the vehicle. There was siding across the vehicle that was chrome, and they were also able to distinguish that the vehicle was a 2004 Dodge Caravan.
0: That would seem to be a hit, for sure, to those of us that don't know much. However, we should mention that there were over 6,000 similar models of that vehicle that were registered just in Toronto alone. So, The police worked to narrow that number down as much as possible by working with vehicle services within Ontario and using the information that they knew, which was just the name Bruce. They found out that of the 6,000 vehicles, only five were registered to a man named Bruce. Out of those five people, the only one that owned a 2004 Dodge Caravan with the chrome siding that was in Toronto was Bruce MacArthur. The next step would have the police watch surveillance videos from the area around Bruce's home, and they did determine that Bruce was indeed driving that vehicle. However, by the time that they confirmed that, the vehicle was no longer at Bruce's residence.
1: Police would take the painstaking steps of trying to spread out and find the van. Eventually, they found the van sitting in the driveway of his daughter in Bowmanville, Ontario. At this point, obviously, Bruce MacArthur was on the radar of Project Prism. They knew that he had purchased a new vehicle not long after Prism was created, and they had plenty of circumstantial evidence to show that he knew at least some of the victims.
0: On September twenty-seventh, two 2017, though, it would be discovered that the van that had previously been tied to Bruce was now no longer on the property of his daughter, Luckily for the police, they guessed that Bruce might be trying to have the van scrapped. They started searching, and they found the van on the lot of Dom's Auto Parts in Curtis, Ontario. The tires were already off the vehicle, as were the plates, but the VIN number matched Bruce's van. Police would impound the van and turn it over to Forensic in hopes that they would find the evidence that they so desperately needed.
1: And they did. Small patches of blood would be found in the van, and DNA testing would confirm that some of the blood belonged to Andrew Kinsman, and there were also two other profiles of DNA that belonged to unknown people.
0: This would give police what they needed. Concrete evidence that showed that it was very possible that Bruce MacArthur was involved in the disappearance and perhaps killing of Andrew Kinsman. This allowed them to start the process of applying for search warrants and other warrants for Bruce. The evidence that he may have been involved in one homicide was definitely enough for them to get a search warrant for Bruce's apartment and they would sneak into his building on December 5th while he was out. However, this visit would be a short one as investigators would be alerted that Bruce was on his way home.
1: Two days later, December 7th, Officers would return to Bruce's home again. Technology crime officers would copy Bruce's hard drive. Other officers would search his bedroom. The officers had less than an hour before Bruce would again be heading home, and they would need to quickly put everything back and leave.
0: Even though officers didn't have time to thoroughly check everything, or even download the entire contents of Bruce's hard drive, what they found was interesting enough. Dozens of photos of the men involved in Project Houston, that being Skanda, Basir, and Hamid, including all of the missing person posters and pictures that Bruce had captured from social media accounts belonging to the men. They also found photos that Bruce had taken himself. Police, though, felt that they were close, but they needed to hold out and find evidence of actual foul play before they arrested Bruce.
1: So, December 7th, wait, wait, wait. So that was one day before Mark Saunders said that the police did not believe there was evidence of a serial killer?
0: Correct. Honestly, look at that however you will, but it appears to me that there was evidence being accumulated that showed that police were actually pursuing what could be a serial killer, while the chief was telling the public at large that there was nothing to be afraid of and there was no serial killer. I don't personally care what the reason was for this, whether they were trying to make Bruce feel more secure or what. You don't tell innocent people that they don't need to be worried about something that's actually being actively looked into. It just seems super foolish to me. Say nothing if you're that close, but this just seems wrong.
1: Um, yeah, I don't even know what to say about that, to be honest.
0: Like I've said, there's a lot of blame that could possibly be thrown around here. This rubs me the wrong way. The way that the police, in my opinion, did not treat all of these missing men uh, fairly rubs me the wrong way. And, well, yes, I will stand up and say that I think that more people died here than needed to if work was done correctly. But the story gets worse before it gets better.
1: Yes, on January 17th, 2018, data on Bruce's computer would again be analyzed and more photos would be discovered. Photos that Bruce tried desperately to delete. Pictures of Salim Essen and Andrew Kinsman in particular that were taken in Bruce's van and Bruce's bedroom. Photos that were very clearly showed that the men in the photos were already dead.
0: This was the evidence that police needed. It was at this point, 40 days after that press conference, that police realized that they had a serial killer on their hands. Plans were set in motion to arrest Bruce on January 20th of 2018. Word was out, though. If Bruce was seen with anyone alone, the arrest would need to happen immediately. The arrest was not going to take until January 20th to happen.
1: On January 18th, a man rode with Bruce to his apartment. The two had met on Growler, a dating app for older men, bears to be exact, and they had hooked up a few times previously. The man that was with Bruce had only been in Canada about five years. The man was married to a woman, and the two had decided to be discreet.
0: There's that pattern again. Bruce would even quiz the man on the way to the apartment ensuring that nobody knew who Bruce was, where the man was, or any details whatsoever. The man told Bruce that this was their secret, as it had been before. Inside the apartment, Bruce was seemingly in a rush, and he arrived with handcuffs in the bedroom. He then left the room again after cuffing the man to the bed, and he returned with a black bag and a black hood that he put over the man's face. The hood had no holes for sight. The man would ask Bruce to remove the hood and say that he was not comfortable with that. Bruce ignored him, and the man fought and wriggled himself out of the hood. As soon as the hood was off, though, Bruce was on top of him, taping his mouth shut.
1: And then Bruce was interrupted by a knock at his door. Bruce, irritated, walked across the apartment to the door and opened it, and he was face-to-face with two detectives, and he was placed under arrest. The two detectives would escort Bruce from the apartment, and another detective was tasked with going into the bedroom, likely expecting the worst. Thankfully, the man was found alive and bound to the bed. With all of this happening, a rush order was put on the search warrants that the officers wanted and needed, expecting them to be provided on the two days later timeline that they had mapped out.
0: This is like something out of like a TV show for sure. I can't believe how close this was to being another victim. I don't even want to say a ninth victim because who knows if there's more. But this man was incredibly close to not being saved. The timeline is crazy.
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, they only really realized that they had their man and a serial killer one day before they arrested him. One day before he had his eyes set on striking again. Like, that's frightening.
0: Things changed very quickly here. The man that was with Bruce very clearly had his life saved that day. Police would then execute search warrants on January 18th at five properties that were associated with Bruce and his landscaping business. Four of the properties were in Toronto, and one property was 200 kilometers northeast in Madoc, Ontario. Three of the properties were released back to their owners by January 23rd, after no evidence was found. The two properties that remained were Bruce's apartment in Thorncliffe Park and the property where he did gardening work in exchange for the storage of his tools on Mallory Crescent in Leaside.
1: Starting immediately on January 18th, police were at the Mallory Crescent property in force. Forensic investigators started searching in earnest on the property and also in the nearby ravine. Here is what the initial press conference for the public said.
0: I quote, This morning, at approximately 10.25 a.m., police arrested 66-year-old Bruce MacArthur of the City of Toronto. He is self-employed as a landscaper, using the company name Artistic Design, and he lives in the Thorncliffe Park area. He has been charged with two counts of first-degree murder in relation to Mr. Kinsman and Mr. Essen. We believe that he is responsible for the deaths of other men who have yet to be identified. In other words, we believe there are other victims. As of right now, interviews are taking place and police have secured five properties, four in Toronto and one in Madoc, connected to Bruce MacArthur in an effort to further investigate these occurrences. Investigators are asking for the continued assistance of the public in this investigation. Unquote.
1: They went on to say, quote, We have not yet found the bodies. We're actively looking for them. We're conducting the search warrants in efforts to locate the bodies. But at this point in time, no, we have not located them.
0: As you can imagine, this was an absolute bombshell when the news dropped. I actually remember clear as day when they announced that the arrest of Bruce was made. This story still blows my mind, like I said earlier.
1: As part of the preliminary search of the property on Mallory Crescent, police of course used cadaver dogs. They took the dogs through the house and down into the ravine but the dogs zoned in on one particular area. The area that was zoned in on were large planter boxes on the property. The planters had frozen to the ground and as such the ground had to be warmed before they could fully search the planters. One of the large planters was wrapped and removed from the property on January 22nd and taken to the coroner's office. On January 29th, police would tell the public that they had found the dismembered skeletal remains of at least three people. The remains had been discovered in two of the 12 planter boxes that were seized and searched from the property on Mallory Crescent.
0: The police said that even though the identification process was still ongoing, they had enough evidence to charge Bruce with three additional counts of first-degree murder in the presumed deaths of Surush Mahmoodi, Dean Lisowick, and Majid Kayan, also known as Hamid, bringing the total of first-degree murder charges at this point to five. It was announced that this investigation into Bruce would easily become the largest operation in Toronto's history. Unfortunately, as we know, this was just the beginning.
1: It was about two weeks later, on February 8th, 2018, that more news would come from police. They announced that the remains of three more people were discovered in the planters from Mallory. Of the six bodies that they now had, police announced that one of the victims was Andrew Kisman, who was identified through fingerprinting.
0: The public was warned that the investigation and identification of victims could take months or even longer. At this point, police were searching down any and all properties that had a history of Bruce doing work on them in fears that they may find more planters and or more remains elsewhere. But over time, it became obvious that the house on Mallory was the epicenter of everything, and it even started to be known by everyone as Ground Zero. The property was finally released to the owners after extensive searching by investigators on February 11th. The property was searched for over three weeks.
1: Hundreds of hours would also be spent working on Bruce's apartment. It was suspected that at least some of the murders were committed in that apartment. That hypothesis was obviously helped with what was going on when police arrested Bruce.
0: When we say that many hours were logged in the apartment, we aren't kidding. The apartment was searched until May 11th, nearly four months of work that was done by 10 forensic officers. Part of the reason for the time spent was because of the vast amount of time that had passed between the murders that they believed Bruce had committed.
1: Hmm, that's interesting.
0: Yeah, it's actually kind of crazy to think about all the work that something like this would entail to essentially search back at least seven or eight years. The apartment could have been painted numerous times new flooring could have been installed. Just think about all of the potential renovations that could have been done over a span of, say, 10 years to either cover up evidence or even just unrelated. That could provide a heck of a lot of work.
1: It's true. You don't often think about things like that. You know, like the entire scope of jobs, I mean.
0: Yeah, it's wild. Us plebs just think that the work is easy sometimes, I think. You walk into a room, shine a flashlight, and take some samples. Easy peasy. This is an incredible line of work that these people are in, and the work that they do is meticulous and absolutely impressive to me.
1: A couple of weeks later, more news came. Bruce MacArthur was being charged with a sixth count of first-degree murder in the death of Skanda. He, of course, was another one of the missing people that Project Houston had been established to look for. Skanda's remains and Hamid's remains were identified via dental records, and the remains had been found in planters on the property on Mallory.
0: Then, on March 5th, police took a step that was really strange to me. Definitely not something that I had ever remembered seeing or hearing about before this. the police released a photograph to the public of the head and face of a deceased man, because they had exhausted all techniques and avenues possible to identify the remains, and they had come up empty. They had also asked around extensively in the village and come up empty on who the man was. This technique of showing the picture, though, would garner them over 500 tips and the police would start trying to locate 22 potential victims that came in from the tips.
1: I don't remember seeing that on the news, but I'm actually really glad that I didn't.
0: Yeah, it seems pretty drastic, but it worked. That's coming up shortly here.
1: The next news that would come would be regarding the last of victims that were part of the Project Houston and Project Prism investigations. It would be announced on April 11th that Bruce MacArthur was being charged with a seventh charge of first-degree murder. This charge was regarding Abdul Bazir Faizi, or Bazir. It was announced that Bazir's remains and the remains of Salim Essen and Dean Lissowick had also been identified as remains that were found in the planters on Mallory.
0: Investigators also announced that they had completed the investigation of the planters located on Mallory Crescent. As we discussed, six sets of remains had now been identified, all but one set that were found on the property, the man that was in the photograph. They also told the public that they had thoroughly searched eight other planters that they located on other properties that were related to Bruce. No evidence nor remains were found in any of the planters that they searched from anywhere except on Mallory Crescent.
1: Five days later, the final charge would be levied and the final set of remains would be identified publicly. Bruce was charged with first-degree murder in the death of Karishna Kumar Kenaragatnam. The release of the photograph and tips that poured in didn't even help to identify Karishna. It was an international agency that got in contact with investigators to identify the man.
0: This would be the end of the charges against Bruce MacArthur. But over the years, so much investigation has taken place here and even around the world. Bruce was a traveling salesman and also was known to simply travel the world as well. There is actually no telling how many victims Bruce might have had and really where other tragedies could have taken place.
1: The final announcement pertaining to the victims would come on July 26, 2018, when it was announced that the remains of Hamid had been discovered in the ravine behind the house on Mallory Crescent. At that point, remains of all eight victims had been recovered.
0: Seven victims found in the planters and one down in the ravine.
1: As for Bruce, he made his appearance in court on January 19, 2018, then made a second brief appearance on January 29th. Following that, he attended most subsequent court proceedings via video link.
0: On January 28th of 2019, the Toronto police announced that there was going to be a significant development in the Bruce MacArthur case the following day, exactly one year after that second appearance by Bruce in court.
1: People were unsure what to expect. Some people believed that Bruce would plead guilty, but there were plenty of people who believed that that was not even an option. A guilty plea is generally used when there is zero chance for the defense in this case. It is often viewed as an absolute last resort. Other people believe that perhaps some of the cold cases that were being compared and investigated to see if there were connections to Bruce were being tied to him and there may even be more charges filed.
0: The next day, people lined up outside the courtroom starting as early as 6am in the blustery cold. It was the day after a snowstorm. Media, friends, and family of all eight men, officers, and so many more people who were touched, impacted, and surrounded by the case. Bruce entered the courtroom looking much different than he had in the past. He looked thinner, broken down, and reserved. Many noted that he looked much older than he had actually looked in the past. Sometimes that is a bit of a ploy when it comes close to sentencing time, but in this case, we are actually talking about a fairly old man that had been living in jail for the past year.
1: The judge then spoke to Bruce and asked him if he understood that he had a right to a fair trial. Bruce answered that yes, he understood that. His voice was very quiet. Most of the room did not even hear him speak. The judge then asked Bruce if anyone was putting pressure on him to plead guilty in the case.
0: Bruce answered no. Then one by one, the names were read out in court, and Bruce was asked how he pled for all eight charges of first degree. Bruce pled guilty.
1: Depending on how you look at proceedings in murder cases, you likely had an opinion, either one way or another, on the guilty pleas. Some were upset that there would be no full sense of closure in the case in terms of a case before a jury. Others were happy that everyone would be spared the details and the amount of time that a trial like this could take. It doesn't matter how much a case looks like it is a slam dunk, there is a lot that goes into finding someone guilty, especially eight counts of first degree murder.
0: I certainly think after all of the years that had passed and all of the people that knew victims and knew Bruce, in my opinion, this was the best outcome. It's obvious that Bruce and his legal team knew that he was guilty and the evidence was damning enough that he was going to jail for a very long time. All that was left were two days of horrifying evidence as part of the statement of facts that's part of any guilty plea.
1: In the end, the prosecution would argue that they wanted the eight murder convictions to stack atop one another so that Bruce would essentially never be able to even apply for parole. Bruce's lawyers, of course, argued for the sentences to be concurrent. That would leave open a small window of opportunity for Bruce to see the outside world again after 25 years in jail. The final step was that the judge gave Bruce a chance to speak in court if he so desired.
0: Bruce would respond that his counsel and himself had decided that he would not be saying anything. When court was back in session a few days later, the judge's decision was shared with everyone. Bruce MacArthur would receive life in prison with no chance of parole for 25 years. Bruce will only be eligible to apply for parole when he is 91 years of age.
1: Part of the reason that the judge decided not to stack the jail time and to have Bruce serve concurrent was because of his age. And another reason was that the judge did give Bruce credit for sparing the family and friends of all the victims from being part of a lengthy trial with everything drawn out again, opening and extending the wounds that had already been left behind. The judge did, however, note that Bruce's crimes were pure evil, and said that Bruce was exhibiting no indication of regret, and it was believed that he would have killed even more people if he had not been caught.
0: There's little doubt of that. Over the years, other men have come forward that have shared stories of times that they were with Bruce and happenstance occurred that likely saved their lives. Things like his roommate coming home sooner than expected, for example. This one is truly something else. I have to ask you, Julie, what did you make of all the details that we covered in these three parts on this case?
1: Well, the one thing that I find absolutely kind of like sickening is I feel like he almost preyed on people that wanted everything to be secretive and didn't want people to know where he was going. Because usually when you meet people on apps, you at least tell one person where you're going. Usually, like that's what you do with your friends. But if your whole sexuality and your lifestyle is a secret, you're not telling anyone. So I feel like he like very much picked on people. And I don't like, I don't like that. I find that's almost like psychotic.
0: Well, yeah, for sure, and I mean, I'll probably rant in a second here, but that is one of those things that um, definitely is a marked thing with most serial killers. They do go to the fringes of society, like, you know, whether it's native people, prostitutes, all those things that we've talked about in the past.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's so sad, and, like, here are these men who just wanted to I mean, A, first of all, come to Canada for a safer, better life or whatever. Yep. And then B, they just wanted to meet someone to, you know, fill that need of being who they truly are. So I feel like in so many ways, not even just by killing them, like he took such advantage of these people and their need for something, yep. you know, and that is just beyond disgusting.
0: For sure. Yep. For me, like, oh, there's so much here. I'm going to get on my soapbox. I feel like... I feel like it's something I've said a whole bunch with this case, but it's certainly true. First of all, I guess I'm going to talk about Bruce. I feel like I'm drawn into his story and his psychology to believe that the changes that happened to him likely came from some kind of a mental break. I think that for far too long he lived a lie. He preferred the company of men, and he was married to a woman. Barely anyone knew that about him. Bruce grew up in a very conservative home. Um, we talked about that. And I think that because of the religious upbringing, he definitely probably hated himself a little on the inside, hated that he yeah. was gay. It
1: was like totally the opposite of what he was grown up like, yeah. in his upbringing, right? For
0: sure. And when things started to change and he was able to be more free and more liberated, I think that a lot of the opposite happened. As Bruce was able to live the gay lifestyle, I think that self-loathing became part of him and rose to the surface and made him the angry person that we got. If you look at his victims, I think that they were not just victims because he saw them as the least likely to get caught. I think there's something so much deeper here. I think that Bruce saw a lot of himself in most of these men, if not all of them, that he was convicted of killing. Bruce found people who were also living a lie, like you said, And perhaps that was a bit of his motive. Mm, Definitely. Men who were married and closeted, men who couldn't own up to all that they were because of religion or upbringing or just the lives that they were already living. In some strange way, like I find myself almost feeling for Bruce, at least in regards to the way that he was clearly led to believe that perhaps all that he was, and I mean before he was a serial killer, of course, was evil and wrong. I've seen that myself, sadly, within organized religion. I think we all have. Yeah. A lot of the so-called rules and boundaries can definitely hurt people more than help. The world that we live in already has a lot of mental health problems, and feeling like you can't be yourself at all doesn't help anyone. That's one of the issues I do have with a lot with organized religion and like upbringings like Bruce had. I'm sure I'm going to take heat for that, but that's how I feel. Don't mince my words though. I The way that Bruce lashed out and obviously the things that Bruce did were not, like unequivocally were not okay. It's a tough one for sure.
1: Yeah, like do you think maybe why you, you kind of feel for Bruce is because in a way you feel for the men he targeted because he was one of those men. So in a way when you're kind of looking at both stories, they have very similar stories. Just, you know, one decided not to be a killer and the other one decided to be a killer.
0: Well, I don't think it's quite that simple with, I'm going to be a killer, but everything no, else but you, you know got what I mean? there, like, like I'm like, picking it up. Their
1: stories are very yeah. similar in terms of how they felt inside and how they perceived the world would perceive them yeah. if they were their true selves.
0: Yeah, it's true. And I think that's why I don't even know how deep people have dove into that. But I think that like a lot of the motive was Bruce was killing people like himself.
1: That's true. That's true.
0: The other issue here, obviously, it's the police. I've done so much research on and talked to you guys so much about the unequal way that police deal with things case to case. This is another one of those. I don't care what anyone says. I don't need to be on my soapbox too much, but certainly most of these men fell into three categories in most cases that arguably will receive less attention than other people maybe would. They were gay or bisexual. They were immigrants, and they were not rich by any means. This wasn't the case across the board, but each and every one of these men were targeted by Bruce MacArthur because he felt that he could make them disappear without being caught. All you need to do is analyze why Bruce was even caught. He grabbed the wrong person. He made a mistake. I mean, we see that all the time. It's often the case. The serial killer makes a mistake, but... The mistake here, I think, was Andrew Kinsman. He was an outlier, and because of that, police ramped up significantly, and the house of cards that Bruce MacArthur had built for himself fell down. Anyways, obviously this is all just my opinion, but from where I sit, and based on my research, that's what I feel. I feel that if not for the death of Andrew Kinsman, Bruce might have never been captured and like honest to God that scares the shit out of me.
1: Yeah. I mean, that definitely scares me too, but I also kind of like, don't care about Bruce. Like I'm almost like, who cares about you? Like you committed these horrible, horrible things, but like really like for the victims and even like future victims of people, even if you're, I just want to say like, even if you're keeping your sexuality a secret, if you're going to meet someone online, like leave a note in your house, even if it's just your house on your own. So that way when police come to search for whatever reason, be like, Oh, okay this is what happened or you know just leave something because it is so scary it doesn't even just happen to like you know, gay people or whatever happens to women and children and everything around the world. It's just, you know, this is definitely like one secluded kind of like group of people or whatever. So, Uh, I don't know. I just think leave something somewhere or put like a note in your phone or anything. Just something that someone can find in case of something.
0: It's true. I mean, we'll cover a case later here from Ontario that is the reason why even if I go to buy something off Marketplace or Kijiji back in in the day i tell julie the address i'm going to
1: always because
0: always. it's just like just in case something happens like yeah. you well know.
1: and you see this case wasn't even that long ago no you know but like we seem to think that the world was a different place so long ago but like yeah. it's always been the same just now we know about it more yep. so now that we know more i think we need to do more to protect ourselves and kind of make a Make things easier for everybody.
0: Preach, preacher.
1: I'm preaching, so... (laughs) Well,
0: that's a wrap on the Bruce MacArthur series, I think. Three episodes looking at the man, then the victims, and then the capture and the prosecution of the monster. At least eight men lost their lives because they trusted someone that in many cases they knew pretty well. It goes to show that especially in today's online world, like Julia was saying, with online dating and anonymous profiles and email addresses that don't have names in them, we really can't be more diligent and more careful when it comes to the people that we know, our families, ourselves, and the people especially that we don't know that well.
1: Thank you all for listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. We will all see you next time, and just remember to be a good human.